0: and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hobcast Book Show from hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello! And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. It is show number 110. 110. It is, and we are nestled in a wonderful cafe that we've visited four times this week in Rye in East Sussex.
1: Called the Apothecary.
0: The Apothecary. That's it. It is, uh, it's, it's very character- characterful, and uh, Rye has been fantastic. We've been here for a week. This has been our week break.
1: It's our last day. This
0: is our last full day here, and uh, there's, a, there's a tinge of sadness. But we ought to introduce ourselves properly. Uh, we can't assume that everyone's coming to us Uh, ...knows who we are. So, Mm. my name's Adrian Hobart.
1: My name's Rebecca Collins.
0: And together we run Hobart Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Crime. Suspense. Mysteries. And thrillers.
1: There was a pause.
0: There's always a pause. (laughs) I I, ought to uh, express that um, I've not been that well this week. number of issues. Poorly teeth, as usual. I I just attract bad teeth. They are a disaster zone.
1: You make it sound like they come and stick themselves, to yeah, you?
0: Yeah, it, <laughs> it does feel that way. That's, that was the start. Then, the, then there was a cold. And Which last, I gave you. And last night um, I had food that disagreed with me. And i just just been in the wars all week, it feels like.
1: Yes, every, every part of you that could fall off and go wrong has fallen off and gone wrong.
0: Yeah, okay. I'm, 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 well, I've, I've still got limbs.
1: And elbows are working, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that's good. But anyway, look, welcome to the show. And uh, as ever, we have a wonderful guest. And it's Susan Darlington, who, this is a departure for us. We've not really done poetry. We haven't. On the the podcast book show. Uh, But that's where we're going today.
1: It is. Yes. And I think we'll do more poetry in the future, because we enjoyed our poetry corner. We did.
0: (laughs) So, Susan Darlington, she's based in Leeds, and she is a fabulous poet. We will hear two poems from her. But we also have up our sleeves a little bonus a little later in the show. We'll say no more.
1: Not literally up our sleeves, because that would be uncomfortable.
0: Well, my elbows just can't take the the pressure of anything being up my sleeves, so...
1: Yeah, we don't want to break your elbows. we just said they're working.
0: No, I need those to be able to drive home, uh, ready for another busy week ahead at Hobeck Towers. Uh, But let's get into... Well, I think there is just the one new story for us this week, and actually broke, as we recorded last week, the story of Roald Dahl and the rewrites, rides Mm. But... The uh, rights holders for the Roll Dahl estate uh, and the books. Well, they're published by Puffin, which is an offshoot Part of, of Penguin. Pen- Penguin Random House. <laughs> and overall, they are owned by Netflix now, and uh, they were bought out a couple of years ago. But they have decided to pass the books through. And don't—I mean, if you haven't read a Roll Dahl book, who hasn't, frankly? At, you know, any point in life, you'll know that they, yeah, there's some language there, which is, you know, it's done for. F- it's how I don't, it's colourful, it's powerful, it's you know, it's they're just wonderful character descriptions that grab children's attention yeah. and minds and have done for the last 40, 50 years.
1: So what he did very effectively, I think, is he pushed the boundaries of reality. Yes. So there's that supernatural element, but they're not completely supernatural. So children can relate to them, looking at the people around mm. them, relate to the characters. And
0: thematically, they're, they're largely about exposing the... Frailties and the um, vices of adult humans, mm. uh, and indeed kids as well to some extent, so, something like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, and at the end, our hero, who is usually a good soul, um, you know, caring soul, will, will, you know, uh, prevail.
1: Yes, but I think it, it, he sort of made children think that they had the slight upper hand in terms of um, intelligence and... Wisdom on adults, which so I loved as a child, absolutely, and isn't that
0: wonderful? <laughs> the fridge that has been rattling around in the background. We also mentioned that we're in this cafe, as I say, but the fridge is rather noisy. Compressor has relented for just a little bit of time, so it's I going to sound a lot word. better. Good work, but no, I think that's it. It gave children agency, a feeling that yeah, know,
1: exactly.
0: Sometimes in combination with adults, like uh, uh, Danny the Champion of the World, which is one of my favourite books. Uh, you know. He and his dad defeating the, uh, the avaricious landowners around with, uh, you know, drugging the pheasants and all that sort of thing, saving the pheasants from the guns. That's, it's just brilliant.
1: And what I like about um, his books is that it, he accepted that not all children have a perfect, happy life. No. And so it helped those children, I think, to feel better about their own lives in a way. Well, look at
0: Charlie. I mean, in, in, oh, poor in Charlie, extreme yeah. poverty... Uh, with his grandparents yeah. topping, yeah. top and tailing the one bed in their house, in their shack, and uh, inheriting the... Uh, well, I don't want to give spoilers, but you know, <laughs> the chocolate factory at the end of it. So this is... Um, I don't
1: this, know if you can give spoilers on <laughs> well, telling the mean, chocolate bag, What we
0: haven't expressed is what the story is. So basically, the, these are the owners of the, of the books have decided that they were going to rewrite them. Um, to take out the stuff that they felt was dodgy and they put it through the sensitivity reading prism um, which is an all too prevalent, in my view prevalent part of publishing now where things are just basically being handed over, so someone's creative art, their decision making the point of view they're trying to take is now being basically edited out by people they've never met before Anthony Horowitz has talked about this, we've talked about this on the podcast extensively where a, story that he re- a novel that he re- wrote recently was so changed that he just didn't want to be associated with it. He was so disgusted by what had happened. Um, but this is what's happened to Roald Dahl. So let's have a look at some of the examples, and I will just draw it up now. Um, Roald Dahl was somebody who had, let's not divorce the fact that he had views which in any time period would appall people, particularly anti-Semitic views, and um, his relationship with women was um, an interesting one uh, <laughs> well, I I'm say. sure he'd
1: say so, yeah <laughs>
0: but uh, I think these books are brilliant anyway, they uh, had decided that uh, these books needed to change, let me find some examples, here we are some characters are not allowed to be fat anymore, in fact all of them are not allowed to be fat, in Matilda, Miss Trunchbull's great horsey face becomes simply her face, but in other cases the rewriting is just bizarre <laughs> Take the use of colour. Characters turn quite pale and not white anymore. In Fantastic Mr Fox, a description of a pair of tractors as both black has been cut. Contemporary authors know all too well about the power wielded by sensitivity readers. The concerns of younger activist employees at publishing houses too often end up moulding the final edit. Yeah, I believe that. But rewriting the works of long-dead authors is surely worse it says here in the telegraph well they would take that sort of attitude Um, anyway this story has moved on this has caused an enormous debate
1: I think it's partly because when you're rewriting the words of somebody who can't answer back that people get very upset by that
0: well he used to say he said to um, uh, let me see who was it it was uh, Lucian Freud I think Uh, no Francis Bacon I'm sorry he had a conversation with Francis Bacon Many many years ago, and he said that if, it, if my publishers change even a comma mm. in my manuscripts, I will send the the great big hungry co- crocodile to eat them. Um, he was very very particular about. Watch you know, out,
1: puffin! Exactly. <laughs> Netflix. Um, yeah,
0: and he felt very particular about this, and you know I can understand that. Now listen, we've had to in, in the Hoback context talk to our authors sometimes about subjects where or approaches to certain things which we felt didn't sit well with a modern audience. That's not the same as putting it through, refracted, through a a sensitivity reader. So the debate then widened out. Salmon Rushdie got involved. The uh, Queen Consort, Camilla, uh, spoke out about it. She just launched a a book charity this week, uh, her own book charity. Um, And she's read Roald Dahl on Jackanory on the BBC.
2: Has she? Yeah. I used to love Jackanory. She she loves
0: Roald Dahl, so she stepped into the, the debate. The Dutch and French publishers of Roald Dahl's books refused to make the changes and fall into line with the rest of the English versions. Oh right, okay. And so now, Didn't know that. Under this furore, they, uh, Pen- you know, Puffin have, uh, and Penguin have have um, tried to justify it. But in the and now, they are going to publish a classic version. Yeah. And this new doctored okay. version, that, that's version.
1: a happy compromise I guess between the <coughs> two positions but...
0: Well, yes and no because <laughs> I'm going to say they should never have meddled with it in the first place and I do think that children can make, you know, I don't think it's overly influential you know, Augustus Gloop is now enormous and not fat, fine but it, to, to my way of thinking we should credit children with a lot more uh, judicious sense
1: yeah, and uh, we've had this discussion about Doctor Who, haven't we? Yes, we the have. way that they um, sort of uh, force a moral message through Doctor Who, and my boys have said, "We don't want that. We want to be entertained. We don't want to be told that it's what's yeah. right and it, wrong." It, and Doctor whatever. Who
0: in the last three seasons or so has been exceptionally preachy. There's always been elements of that, mm. but it's been a lot subtler. Yes. Um, you know, going back to the 70s, John Pertwee era was all about environmental stories and about... Because it was based on Earth. He, he, his, uh, he couldn't travel in the TARDIS. It was partly to save money, then he had to build alien sets. But basically, a lot of the stories of that era mm. were about the threat of, you know, the oil industry and things like that. And then latterly, you've got something like Terror of the Zygons, where... Uh, there's, a mach- there's a monster destroying oils, North Sea oil rigs. So it was always contemporary.
1: But those stories make you go away and think about it, whereas the more modern stories yeah, were just telling you, you this yeah. is what we want you to think. Exactly. So it's exactly. different.
0: So this has been a, a very interesting debate, and, uh, and I read this morning that the next to get this treatment is Ian Fleming and the James Bond books.
1: It'll just go on, though, won't it? Yeah,
0: it will. It will, but it, in my opinion... It's got to stop, you know. I think doctoring stuff because it's from a different period to make, bring it up to modern mores. It's it's just one step off of burning the books, in my view. You know, we should allow audiences to access whatever they want if they feel strongly about the sort of thing and the mores of books written in the nineteen sixties, nineteen fifties, whatever. Then they don't read them. Same as switching the telly off if something appalls you. Mm. Uh, in my view and to go in and deliberately make them uh less offensive to a modern audience just wrong because that was not the author's intention or indeed the rest of the people involved in that creative process yeah
1: because people have enough intelligence to know it's in the context of history context of different times and different culture
0: but absolutely they need
1: to be given that We'd love to Choice.
0: know your views. Uh, please contact us at Hoback Books <laughs> if you want to uh, enter this debate or join us on the social media.
1: But we're not Angry Person Radio, are we? No, we're not.
0: No, <laughs> we're not. No, I just think it's, it, it's been a fascinating debate um, and uh, an unfortunate one and completely unnecessary in, in many ways. But anyway, it's, 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 it's out there now. Okay, let's get to, because uh, I say we've only got to do the one big news item this week. Yeah,
1: because it's such a big news item.
0: It is. Let's get to our interview with Susan Darlington. And uh, yeah, it is a departure for us to to touch on poetry, but what comes from this interview is the power of the word and the amount of work it takes to convey such powerful themes and ideas in so few words.
1: Well, I think, to me, what I got out of it is that she was conveying the same amount of emotion through uh, fewer words than somebody who... Would do the same amount of motion in like a, a story or a book, but poetry can do that
0: yeah yeah, and it, and, and I think that well it 's something that we ask her actually Have you ever thought about doing long form writing in terms of writing novels because she 's also a reviewer of the arts, and and that's really was a gateway into writing poetry and, and, and getting it published. Mm-hmm. Um, had that ever appealed to her she 's actually no she 's comfortable in the short, shorter forms, mm. but nonetheless, I do think. <coughs> You have to forgive me. <coughs> Keep talking.
1: He's coughing a lot, and it's my fault because <laughs> I gave it to him. Sorry. Yeah. <coughs> no, now we're, now we're
0: going. Now we're going. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for improving your prose by trying to poetry, in terms of you know cadence, rhythm, the beauty of the language,
1: and the fact that every word earns its place in yeah, a poem.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's talk to Susan Darlington.
1: It's so
0: lovely to be joined by Susan Darlington. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hopcast Book Show.
3: Good to be here. Pleased to meet you.
0: You too. And um, I, I wanted to ask, I mean, I normally don't go into these interviews with any prepared questions, but I had one already.
3: <laughs> I know uh, what uh, it
0: is. Uh, <laughs> so this is my random question. No, not at all. When did you first fall in love with the word, as in the, the power co- of Yeah, words.
3: words. It's probably a bit of a cliche, but I think I always have been in love with the word. I think I grew up in a household where I was fortunate enough to have stories read to me you know, before going to bed, and um, you know, having having those Ladybird books, which I would ask to to be read on on repeat until I could remember every single word from them. And it never really went away. You know, I think it the books I read kind of developed obviously. Um, But, yeah, that the escapism that you can get from a book, you know, I think we, that's only I, have always needed it in in life. So, yeah, just always. The only thing that's ever challenged it really is music.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I I, I totally believe that. I mean, it's funny enough because you're in, uh, am I right in saying you're in Leeds at the moment?
3: Yeah,
1: that's right. Oh, that's where my eldest is at university. But the the reason (laughs) I I mention it is because
0: last night's episode uh, of The Piano was on Leeds Station on Channel 4, which was one of the most moving things I've ever watched uh, with this young lady called Lucy, who's been blind pretty much from birth, playing Chopin's Nocturne number 1 and just doing it beautifully but unable to see the keys just does it by mm. feeling. No,
1: oh, it's incredible wasn't it. She also um, she's also- Yeah
0: and she's and so yeah she, absolutely she's got many um developmental issues but the thing was that what you're saying about the word and also music combined you know in terms of the two things that can move you in that fashion absolutely chimes with me because I was absolutely sobbing my eyes out last night. It was terrible. I mean,
1: <laughs> it was, uh, that, well, we've seen two episodes now.
0: There's only been two episodes. Mm. Hasn't there? I, I told you this interview would be random, but there we go. We've gone <laughs> off on a on a tangent. But in terms of your own writing life, what stage did that take? Was it always through school? Did you, you know, was it the thing you looked forward to most? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think
3: English was always one of those subjects where, I almost didn't need to try at it because I had that genuine interest, so I was probably doing it anyway. You know, I was reading through choice. I was—I always remember, you know, writing little stories, you know, about squirrels and you know, hedgehogs, all, all the usual stuff. Um, yeah, and that—that that was kind of helping me develop. And then I think when I got to my, to, to be a teenager, the creative side perhaps dropped dropped off, but I then started to really get that passion for music and so I started to write reviews and interviews with musicians so in some shape or form that writing has always been there um, whether or not it's been part of kind of the school curriculum or going on I mean I studied English at university so it's always been there in some shape. Sure.
1: I was going to say because you were talking about writing reviews and interviewing musicians, but I think there is a there's a creativity in non-fiction writing just as much as creative writing, isn't there? You know, it's.
0: I think it depends on the on the outlet, if you like. Now you're writing still. You're doing a lot of this creative uh, writing, journalism, reviewing music and art, and, and 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 the written word. So, um, and it really depends on what. You know publication you're going for, doesn't it and in terms of how creative you can be and how much trust they place in you to, to you know and allow you to go is that your experience
3: yeah i mean, I, th- I think as well is is that the trend in print to go towards shorter and shorter reviews because we've got a shorter and shorter attention span or that's what we're told conversely, you've probably got a lot of websites where there really is no word count because obviously you're not taking up any page count. And from a creative point of view and a pleasurable point of view, in some ways, those are far more satisfying. And obviously, 200 words is quite challenging to say yeah. why you like something, um, but it's still an opportunity to share that enthusiasm. You've got 500, 1,000 words, and you can really go for it. You can do <laughs> your search, you can go off on how it moves you. It's, it, it's not just pure explanation it's about feeling as well and I think those are the ones which probably I respond to as a reader and so as a writer that's what I try to achieve not always always successfully certainly within deadlines and time frames but yeah that's the that's the goal.
0: Are you one of those people who likes to work to a deadline I mean you actually find it the flow comes because of the pressure I mean I'm certainly one of those people but I don't know about you.
3: To a point, yeah. I mean, I think it can be useful in terms of having an end point. You know, I think we all know, don't we, that you can tinker endlessly with a piece of work, you know, putting in those commas, taking out the comma, changing B to, yet to A. Um, so having the deadline can can be really useful. I guess conversely, sometimes I would certainly like to research a piece more than I have, have the time for. But there's, there's probably a healthy balance between the two. Mm. Mm. You're definitely a deadline
1: person, aren't you? Oh,
0: yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to 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 an absolutely anarchic degree. um I have to say that you know, if I can leave it and leave it and leave it, I will. And uh it drives you nuts, doesn't it? I mean, I mean from a business point of view, it's not <laughs> not a great way to run.
1: Yeah, I've learned how to manage you now that yeah. I I won't bother. I won't if it's two weeks. I won't bother saying, "Can you do this?" Because he won't.
2: <laughs>
1: but yeah. if I say oh it's you know ideally by one o'clock can you do this and he'll do it
2: yeah yeah
3: it's knowing how we work but it's also knowing how other people work so that we can get the best from ourselves and other people so mm.
0: that's true I mean it is and and uh yeah I mean it's always been that way e- essay crises at university I think I discussed this last week <laughs> were, were, were monumental um I, I was going to ask the question, when you said, said you studied English at university, quite often, and, and I had a few friends who did, and I, I did consider it at one stage. Excuse me, sorry, I just dropped my phone. Um, it, it was, uh, I noticed that some of the pleasure of the English language actually left people when they went and just studied it at university. I don't know if that, that echoes with you at all. I don't
3: know if the enjoyment did. But certainly it made me view things in a different way. Yeah. Which I guess to a point is the purpose of studying. It made me really consider themes, repeated words, which, yeah, certainly gave me a more critical angle, which detracted from some of the flow. Mm. But I think thinking about it now, some of those things probably helped with my writing because, you know, having themes or having continuity through a piece, especially poetry, which is very short and condensed. I think those are really important things. And maybe I would have learned them anyway by being a reader, but having been forced into that critical thinking at university, um, definitely helped, I think.
0: I've got to ask, did you get, I mean, everybody I always knew who studied English got stuck with Beowulf for (laughs) for, for months on end, it seemed. I don't know if that's how your course went.
3: I didn't. No, no. I mean, I have subsequently read both, which I did really enjoy. Yeah. I think the worst one we had was we we had um, Ulysses to, re- to read in a fortnight. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> no. Of no. course, absolutely no one achieved. I think I read the first three chapters and just gave up on it. And I've never gone back to it, to my shame. I
1: have, I have a confession on that book. So it's one of those books that you're supposed to have read if mm-hmm. if you if you consider yourself well read that's one of the books you're supposed to have read, and be able to talk about it and marvel at it's um you know yeah sort of, yeah and i I did give up I was on a train and i I got about three chapters in, and I thought I don't get it, and I just left it on the train'
2: you
0: actually left the book on the train, yeah, good Lord,
1: I thought someone else might enjoy it didn't very well. It is, of- it's, I mean, I'm sure it is a work of genius, but I couldn't I? I couldn't. Listen, my imagination didn't relate to it at all.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's turn to the poetry then, because um, that's your your principal sort of literary outlet at the moment. And yeah. what drew you to concentrating on poetry? Because for a lot of people, it's quite an intimidating thing to 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 approach. Really, I think.
3: Um. I'm honestly not too, too sure, in a way. I mean, as I say, when I, when I was growing up, I predominantly wrote short stories. And then at yeah. some point, I'm not too sure when or why, it pivoted more, more towards poetry. I suspect it was kind of a time factor. though. Mm. I think it's probably a lie that poetry is easier or quicker to write than a short story, because um, mm. in, in some ways there's probably a lot more editing and concision that goes into it. Um, I suppose like a lot of teenagers, um, you know, I was introduced to people like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. And certainly when I was growing up, Riot Girl was um, quite a big musical or youth culture um, where those two writers were very much at the forefront. Um, yeah. and that was something that I was reading a lot about at the time. I kind of got swept up in by the whole enthusiasm of it and the can-do attitude of it. Um, which, again, I think helped me, given that even though I did study um, English at university, I still feel like in many ways I'm untutored in, in writing creatively.
2: Mm.
0: Shall we hear one of your poems? I yes. know oh, we've asked you to, yeah. uh, to, to have a couple. Well, let's hear one, and then we can take it from there, if that's all right.
3: Okay, yeah. I'll read one, um, which is from my uh, my current book, which is called Neverwhere Light. And um, I'll read a piece which was... Loosely inspired by a news story, um, which you, you may or may not remember, there was a um, prawn fisherman who um, who was swallowed by a whale,
4: right? And then yes. was
3: spat out by him. Which I just thought was such a fantastic story. You know, yeah, I did read that one all yeah. over again. So this is very, very loosely inspired by that incident. It's called the Encounter. The whale swallowed my mother when she was just a child. She was floating in a raft when everything went black. Calmly counted to 40 before she was spat back out. The encounter improved her swimming. Teachers said she was a natural, and her bedroom walls became lined with trophies. She never ate fish again. Swore it would bring bad luck. She adorned her clothes with tiny silver air bubbles that burst under my cheek when she held me close and told me her life story. I didn't quite believe her, yet every time she had a bath, I pressed my ear to the door and listened to her siren's call. It would lure me to sleep. When I woke, she'd have cleaned the seaweed tide mark from the tub.
1: wonderful yeah I, that's great and, and well I think that my first impression is that it tells a story so do you write poetry is most of your poetry telling a story of some sort as opposed to you know like you have poems who they, they're very much emotion-based or um do you know what I mean or
0: yeah I mean
3: there
0: was narrative yeah to that? yeah but done with with layers yeah
3: yeah, I think they, they quite possibly do have a tendency towards, or certainly latterly, have a tendency towards the narrative, which I suppose links quite neatly back to what we were saying before about short stories. Mm. In some ways, I think, oh, could, could this be flash fiction? But it never quite expands that far. It, it always remains in quite quite a tight poetic form. Mm.
1: But that's interesting, I think, because of the, the, the division between poetry and flash fiction... Because flash fiction doesn't necessarily have to be straight text, does it? It can have a form to it. I think, but it's not quite poetry.
0: Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I, to be honest, because we're so in the publishing crime fiction kind of world at the moment, I haven't. Um, you know, my my sort of Catholic tastes have sort of narrowed somewhat to essentially looking at prose, Mm. you know, and books as opposed to flash fiction, poetry, or anything else at the moment. And part of me sort of really sort of yearns to get connected again um, with those forms. But, you know, it it just, it's a question of time, really. Mm. But I, I was interested, I mean, have you ever been tempted to write novels?
2: Um.
3: Yes. I'm pausing because I say yes, but I know we're all meant to have a novel inside us. I've never had that one big story that I've wanted to tell. Mm. I do send to, you know, send that the poem that I just read has, has got a narrative to it. But when I sit down and think, okay, how can I turn that into even a short story, let alone a novel? I kind of think, oh, I've got no idea really. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm I'm so used to writing in a very short, tight form that... Um, it's it's a challenge to not not. I don't want to go into the purple prose quite, but to to be more florid, even I, I, I find challenging. Right. Maybe that's a challenge that I should set myself. Yeah,
0: it, it could be. But I, I, mean, I, I
3: can relate to that because I, I, I've um, I've actually
1: had poems published once in a book.
0: Have you?
1: Yes, you know about this thing. Uh,
0: yeah. So yes. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I remember
1: i'll show you a copy later so where i, where I used to live in childbury in oxfordshire and the, they had a bookshop and the owner of the bookshop um put out that he wanted poetry about the area he was going to publish a book so i wrote some poems and they got published that was a, that was my poetry career but I, I personally, I prefer writing short stories or flash fiction. I, I can't—the thought of writing a novel is mm. really daunting. I did try during lockdown, like many people did, mm-hmm. but didn't get very far. <laughs> you see, this is
0: this is where I have a sort of un, untried thesis, really. But I think, from your perspective, you know, as a as a you know a recognized and 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 uh, increasingly celebrated poet, right? Your command of that form of of language could actually very well inform and strengthen if you did get to the sort of longer forms thing that command of the uh of structure of you know the the way that you put a poem together, the cadence, the rhythm. It could be a great asset because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of writers can do the prosaic, but finding that extra element of truth and magic in the way that people talk to each other in, in dialogue mm-hmm. in the way that you've condensed a very you know in a fantastical setting a very human set of thoughts uh, you know a theme that that has a real resonance mm-hmm. that's often lacking I think from fiction unless it's in the literary side of it and then sometimes mm-hmm. as you say the purple prose comes out and it you know you start losing yourself but actually writing in a in a poetic way can be quite direct as well yeah. you know you can you can convey and actually i think that i would like to read more dialogue in this you know in the commercial side of things which had that element of cadence and also an element of mystery to it that you know it's the negative space the things they're not saying Mm other things that that convey I don't know if I'm making myself no I do I do know
1: what you mean because I I, when when somebody who is a poet turns to writing you can tell because they know the value of each individual word and Mm -hmm. they don't go over the top and and like you're talking about writing
2: Mm.
0: more comfortable leaving stuff out
1: yeah so there may be a sentence where there's more said in that sentence because of what like like Mm. you say what's not said in the sentence Mm -hmm. and then I think Mm -hmm people experienced with poetry or have a poetic way of looking at the world are very good at that element, at that aspect of writing.
3: Mm. Yeah, I suppose it's notable how many poets, um, people start out as poets and then they seem to move into novels. And then, you know, you've got people like Helen Mort, obviously you've got Sylvia Plath. I'm, I'm struggling to think of people who've done the, re- the done the reverse, who've started out as a novelist and gone on to do poems I, mean, I suppose you've got people like Margaret Atwood haven't you who's always shifted yeah that's true
1: yeah
0: yeah, um, yeah and
3: Larkin
1: wrote a couple of books as well right
0: you? and then you think of someone who is the master of of uh, prose in the non-fiction sense in Clive James who was oh. a wonderful poet mm-hmm. Um, and it's in you know in those latter years as he was became ill and he wrote about his illness and stuff like that and also um I think he did some some translations as well of other other works um he he's you know his poetry became once he got off the telly if you like everyone started to recognize his true literary talent
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and poetry was his first passion and love uh but he managed in the observer columns he used to write about television and indeed the way he put scripts together for television just a master of the, of the written word
2: mm-hmm.
0: um but yeah um uh, there's somebody I, I, you know, I've got a, a caricature of him on my desk, but, he, you know, a true hero of mine,
2: I think. <laughs>
0: to com- to have those two things, to be exceptionally funny and able to communicate in an intelligent way to the whole, you know, British audience, at the same time as being incredibly high-level poet as well.
3: Yeah, I think it's an incredible skill, isn't it? Just in writing, whether it's poetry, short stories, it should all be about communication, shouldn't it? And... To me, while there's certainly scope for experimental writing, to me it's about being accessible. I don't like things which are particularly elitist. You know, I want to reach people. I want to make them feel. And someone like Clive James was, as you say, he was was a master at doing it and making people feel relaxed. That's the impression we get from watching footage of him and and Mm. reading interviews with him. And that, yeah, it's a genuine skill, which to, to then be able to turn that into other forms, um, yeah, people who can do multiple things is it, just something that I'm incredibly jealous of. A lot admire, you know. I guess that, that's a, a better way of phrasing it. Absolutely,
0: uh, you know, these polymaths are just crazy, aren't they? In terms of um, the the way that your poetry has developed, uh, I mean, I you know, I read that you're regularly out performing uh, around the West Yorkshire area. Um, how much does an audience reaction? back into your work in terms of does it does it deflect you in different directions does it does the feedback you get from from an audience change the way that you approach your work or indeed you know would you still be writing if you didn't have that audience if you like you know that face-to-face interaction with people
3: um yeah I mean I think I, I would always be writing you know I think it's something which is just as with many people who who write or play music or something. I just I think it's, a, it's an internal drive. When I don't have that outlet, I, I feel a bit incomplete, you know, like something's missing within me. Um, I try not to be too influenced by what people say in that I want to be able to hopefully continue to develop my writing in a way that challenges me as much as an audience. The, that said, of course, it's incredibly flattering when someone comes up to me after a reading and says, you know, I like that poem, I can really relate to that poem, or, you know, it, it triggered certain emotions within them and or it triggered a debate. You know, I think it, that's the highest praise that anyone can have, really, to, to move someone.
0: Absolutely, yeah. In terms of the culture around you at the moment in in, in Leeds and and, and Yorkshire. Um, I mean, I get the impression there's a really strong poetry scene. Is that, am I right in thinking that?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got quite a lot of um, open mic nights. Um, Obviously we've got Simon Armitage, who's going to be working on the poetry centre, which is going to be in Leeds in the wider sense. You know, we've got Leeds 2023, we've got Bradford, um, as the City of Culture 2025, Wakefield, Kirklees, they've all got their um, years of culture coming up. So as as a region, it, it feels like it's really thriving in, in that widest sense, not just in poetry. Um, but, yeah, it just feels like suddenly all these things have been recognised and celebrated, and it's, it's really community-based. There's so much community outreach going on to yeah. encourage everybody and make them believe that they they do have that creative spirit within them that they can do it, which, you know, I think is so encouraging you know, coming from a time when it didn't feel like that there was that much. I was effort. going to say,
0: it must, it, you know, because of all that effort that's gone in by yourself and, and and others around you. And now suddenly, you know, it's it's a thing that everyone is recognising and it's getting that opportunity to, to shine. But, it, you know, it must have felt at times like a, you know, lonely and difficult struggle, you know, at the times when this wasn't recognised, now it's everyone's behind it, but, you know, it's not always been that way.
3: I don't know. I think when I was growing up, there was a very lively sort of fanzine culture, which, yes, it was primarily around music, but there was a um, scope there for, for literature. So I might not have known people in my hometown um, or people actually in person, but I feel like there was always a vibrant scene out there through letters because this was pre-email um, and, and it was always a supportive community so I've never really felt isolated in that way I just think we now have obviously different modes of communication with website and email and yeah obviously big scale events like this which have perhaps made it easier to connect on a small scale
2: um,
3: but yeah I think people have always been creative and they've always sought out the creatives um, I don't think that's ever going to change. I hope not. Do
1: you think because Yorkshire, I was just thinking about Yorkshire, because a lot of our authors are from Yorkshire, like more, bigger proportion are from Yorkshire than should be. If you...
0: <laughs> it's like the thing they were saying in uh, London 2012, you know, Yorkshire is the, like number 10 on the medal table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, so, at the Olympics.
1: You know, you, you could say, is it because of the landscape? Um, that people are inspired by the landscape to write or they they feel they have the space to write and be creative. Do you find the la- landscape of where you are, does that inspire your work?
3: Yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I'm fortunate in that I, I'm in North Leeds, so I'm, I don't have too far to travel before I'm in, in the countryside. And I've also got areas to walk within, like, 10, 15 minutes. And certainly being if Not being influenced directly by the environment, having the physical space to walk in and to think and to process. You know, I think walking is such a brilliant way, isn't it, to empty your mind, but empty it in a, in a kind of a creative way where suddenly you can start to think about other things that you know can then feed into poems or you know, what, what, whatever creative form that we're doing.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I guess so the I
3: suppose, geographically, Yorkshire is. What, one of the biggest counties you know we've got more people here than we have in all of scotland i think that's <laughs> I right know, that I didn't know that. that's so it kind of it probably statistically it makes sense that we've got a lot of writers here as well yeah you know, that's you, true.
0: It, it is it is very true and it is uh you know there's a fabulous tradition isn't there you know you're only just around the corner to to the brontes and all that sort of stuff but it's um what i was going to touch on with the with you were talking about the scene and and you know the way that Creators will gather together, and, and and there's different forms of communication. But something I'm pining for is that feeling of we recently been watching quite a few documentaries about the development of music in the 70s and 80s. Let's say, and movements coming from geographical parts of the country. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean <laughs> well, even the thing we were watching the, the other day about Spandau Ballet, you, um, know, yeah. you know, and the Blitz okay. Club in 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 Soho and uh, New Romantics, but you know, uh, pretty much every major city in the North had something mm. bubble up from it. And I kind of don't get that feeling anymore, partly because it's very hard to make money out of music nowadays unless you're a big live act. But are you sensing where you are, there is still that thing bubbling along? I mean, because there aren't the venues now for to go and do the reviews that you, you've done over the years.
3: Um. I think we're quite fortunate in, in Leeds and that we, you know we've still got quite a few small supportive venues. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking primarily here if you've got the Broodnell Social Club, you've got Hyde Park Book Club. Um, so that you know that they are very supportive of, of, of artists. Um plus, but as well, you know, that kind of the movement that you're talking about. I don't think it was always healthy, was it? It didn't always produce great art. You know, there was very much <laughs> people jumping on that bandwagon.
1: That's true,
3: um, and so maybe yes, we have got a far more fragmented scene now. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, provided you know you still got those grassroots venues to to offer support. I think.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think that you know, unfortunately, yeah, the big cities have still got enough venues to keep that thing going. But I think it's you know the the, the smaller outlying places. I mean, I came from Cambridge. And we had two or three venues when I was growing up. But before that, there were loads more. And You think of the the biggest band that came from there was Pink Floyd. But lots of other acts of some significance came from a place like that. You don't get that now. And I kind of miss it, really. And I I think it's partly the the fanzine culture in terms of actually the physical copy we all used to wait for. (laughs) In our case, it was a thing called Seen and Heard, which was basically edited by two blokes. Um, who used to turn up to every single gig that was ever played at this particular pub. And we'd all get a bit of, you know, even a few column, in, you know, three inches of column space was like, well, it
1: was, we'd he, arrived. He, he was in a band, weren't
0: he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was terrible. But, yeah, we are in a band. But I kind of miss well, that. I mean, I there know.
3: are other factors going on, aren't there? I mean, obviously, a lot of venues now are being affected by things like Arts Council. Um, oh, big time. Like, oh. But equally, I guess, in the 80s, when you, when you were talking about those big scenes, you know, you had people who could be on the dole yeah, and a, an awful lot of bands were using that dole money to support their art and their development in a way that just isn't possible now. Uh, That's uh, I think finance is such a big factor and in, in, increasingly it's creating those inequalities, isn't it really, between different classes of who's able to pursue a career in the arts. Yes.
1: No, that's, that's just thing I hadn't thought of that, but it's true, isn't it? Because most people now they know they recognise they have to have a day job, which yeah. means they haven't got much time to develop their creativity or the headspace, because you, know, you come up out of work, and what's the last thing you want to do is?
0: <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I mean, it's probably your passion, but you know, and,
1: you it's
2: know, still it's difficult. A, it's a cliché, isn't it's it? Difficult. The,
0: the penniless, starving artist who becomes a megastar, but. Uh, i think I think you're right i think the the support for grassroots arts and indeed venues has suddenly dried up literally overnight in these last few weeks you hear about all these theaters shutting uh, particularly around the north and um it's just ter- terrible so is that gonna does that sort of thing have a, an impact on on your creative life seeing things like that being being under put under pressure
3: um well, I mean I think like most people. I am trying to write whilst holding on a full-time day job, um, which is the norm these, these days. I mean, I think it probably always was. And yeah, it can be incredibly challenging to find the the mental space and the energy to, to keep that going. Um, I can't see that changing <laughs> anytime soon, sadly. Um, but yeah, I think I like to think that if we have that creative drive, if I have that creative drive, then somehow i will keep pushing through it might be it might take longer than i would like to to make those developments um but i would rather it be slow and steady than not be there at all well. yeah mm. let's hear another
0: poem shall we and uh, then we'll we'll talk about the you know the the process of of, of getting your work out into the world but okay. uh, let's let's <laughs> uh,
3: the next one i'll read is um talking about kind of public reactions earlier, And um, this is probably one that's had one of the strongest responses um, I've had from, from women. Um, it's called Carrie, which is in reference to the Stephen King novel. So again, as with the poem I read previously, it's only very, very loosely inspired by that. I learn about the shame of a woman's body from my mother's handwritten notes. The ones I pass, red-faced, to my teacher that excuse me from showers and swimming. I stand at the edge of the echoing pool, flush under the stare of my classmates, and imagine every laugh is aimed at me, humiliated by my exclusion, and worried that while I stand here, everyone can smell the iron of my blood, see the stain seeping into my skirt's fabric and dribbling down the inside of my thighs. There's no pride in womanhood here, no sisterly bond in the changing room where our pubescent bodies are revealed from under layers of baggy clothing, where every breast and roll of fat is scrutinised and found wanting, where pads and tampons are bad, and not even needing them is worse. Steeped in lessons from Carrie, we fear becoming targets of ridicule, are cruel and careless with our bodies as we absorb a shame we don't understand it's very
1: powerful because I remember I do remember that that feeling of when you're not doing swimming and thinking everybody knows (laughs) yeah no
2: (laughs) well
0: no I can't but I do remember and also
1: that sort of fear of leaking and things yeah yeah
0: well, I, I have to say, and okay, I'm not trying to sort of belittle um, the issue, but when you're a when you're a teenage boy, you- forced into the showers, and you're twelve, and half a dozen of you might have hit puberty, and the others haven't.
1: Well, it's the same for girls, same and, same sort of thing,
0: and it's just like you know, I mean, you know, I suppose. Should I say that I felt fortunate to have been one of the guys who hit puberty? <laughs> I don't know, because I think there was an element for slowly, So, you know, you, so uh, you know, the guys who were later to develop felt.
1: Absolutely. So my really, I, I, best friend I don't know. who doesn't listen to this podcast, but she she was quite late developing. So she didn't start her periods till she was 16. And she mm. felt really sh- sh- a lot of shame for being so late developing, you know, when everyone else around her they were changing physically and mentally and emotionally and she hadn't gone through that yet. So. Yeah. I mean, I
0: suppose my point is, is that that's very powerful. And it really speaks to that age and, you know, the issues that girls face. And I think it, it, and that shame very often can continue through that, you know, that sense Mm -hmm. it can be, it can be a different trigger later Mm -hmm. on in life. Yeah. Um, whether it be you know uh, post baby,
1: oh, you know, all sorts of things. Whatever. But, yeah, I mean, I'm you
0: know, I could pick an issue, but um, but I think it, that shame carries through, uh, mm-hmm. and but it's it's at its perhaps rawest at that age, yeah. isn't it? When you're conscious of everything,
2: but it's yeah, very powerful.
3: And I think you know what what you just said as well is that yeah, that's obviously a poem from from woman's perspective, mm. um, but you've been relate related to your experiences um, because I think it, it is an issue which in different ways affects both boys and girls. And um, yeah, I I, like, I I wouldn't want that poem just speaking away to one person. I like the fact that for you, it kind of opened up that dialogue yeah. or that, that memory. Um, and I like the fact that hopefully now um, you know, we've got people who are talking a bit more openly and honestly. It feels like you've got a lot more women certainly writing tv scripts yes and um we see things like tampons on tv now which you never did you know women were not allowed to have certain things happening to to their bodies um so it feels like we're moving hopefully into a far healthier stage well
0: i think so but then something terrible happened in the sporting sphere which is my old stomping ground in terms of journalism Mm. the other day i don't know if you saw it tiger woods
1: why? What did he do? He was
0: playing a, a, a <laughs> tournament in America. His first one back for several months. He's always injured and he's got bad back and his legs are knackered and all that stuff. Anyway, uh, as a joke, he thought, his playing partner, Dustin Johnson, former world number one, he said, you're hitting the ball like a girl. At which point oh. he got out of his golf bag and handed him a tampon.
1: Oh, dear.
0: In front of, you know, as they were walking between holes or whatever it was. And... uh it, it, he couldn't recognise that he'd done something wrong. He's now sort of been shamed into making an apology, but that was such a setback. I mean, this is somebody.
3: But, but maybe that—that that in itself is a, is a step forward in that. I mean, I I haven't heard of that incident before. You'd mentioned it. Yeah. But maybe even ten years ago, that would have been seen as a joke, whereas now it's something that he has to go back and go, "Sorry, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think," or, or "Yeah, I you was know, being insensitive." That's a real cultural shift, I think. Yes. Yeah, well he's
0: an way. interesting character in the sense that, you know, he he was, you know, to almost exclusively the only person of colour on the PGA tour. In fact, there was um uh a joke that used to go around on the golfing circuit. I used to cover the, the golf a bit. And it was what do you call um uh forty white men chasing one black man. And mm-hmm. everyone expects to say Ku Klux Klan. And actually it's the PGA golf tour because, you know, he was always oh, okay. num- you know, the one up up in front of the rest of them were were chasing him, if you know what I mean, in terms of well, he's the best one. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, that
0: was the that was the the gag. Anyway. Um, so there's somebody who's who's faced a lot of um racism, in fact. There was an occasion when he first won the Masters Golf Championship what happens with the master's winner is that they then have a champion's dinner just before the next year's event and they get to choose the, the menu. And uh, one of the old, older players on the tour said, Oh, we're going to have to eat, you know, grits and collard greens or something, you know, the food that he, know, it was basically a a full on racist comment. Mm. What, what, what did black people eat? You know, whatever. And it was, and this guy barely ever played golf again. So again, you know, for for Tiger Woods to have crossed that line last week, having been the subject yeah. uh, in another sphere of being, you know, of, of these sort of comments, I just it it staggers me. But there you go. <laughs> Don't know where to go with that. Well, no, um, no,
1: we were going to ask you about your your process of getting your poetry published. Mm. I think, weren't we? So how you know that started,
3: and um, again, it kind of harks back to, to the the fanzine days, really um you know I was buying them as as a fan I was reading them and thinking well you know what I can do as well as this um and so I started to submit reviews and and poems and it kind of progressed from there really um I started to write for um more professional um publications with, with the reviews and I suppose at the same time there was that transition over to the website so you had more Web journals, which made it um, more accessible to to find out about these calls for for material, um, and yeah, it just kind of escalated through that. And I think things like Twitter. I'm I'm not the biggest social media fan, but I think it can be again an incredibly useful tool for finding out um, about opportunities that that are out there.
0: Yeah, and in terms of the current health of poetry, what What's your take on that at the moment? Because I mean, clearly we've got Simon Armitage. Um, we've had Andrew Motion. There's quite a few, already, sort of you know,
1: quite young poets.
0: Yeah, I think it seems to be um, getting, getting. You know, people are getting recognition and, and 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 lifted up a little earlier in in their careers now. Um, maybe I'm wrong in that, but I th- that's how it feels.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, as well. I mean, you you've got the Simon Armitage of the world, but I think you've also got a really thriving. Sort of, performance poetry scene and um, again I think it, it kind of almost goes back to that crossover with, with music that other passion where you've got people like Kate Tempest who straddle the area you've got a lot of um, rap music which almost seems to be going back to um, I don't want to quite say its origins but it's got much more of a spoken word element which I think is suddenly making it a lot more attractive to some younger people who certainly at school when all you're taught is, you know, Philip Larkin and people who are old and white and male and you don't relate to it, or also people don't relate to it, suddenly having these other people who reflect your experiences and your background, then, yeah, it's suddenly like, yes, I am interested in it. This is something that I can get involved in. Um, And I do think that that's feeding through into the wider scene, which is, yeah, incredibly healthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I I think at this stage we should... um really uh <laughs> you know face our demons um and
1: demons
0: <laughs> this is this is the toughest part of the, of the interview let's um let's get to rebecca's random question
1: Okay, so you know this question, because when we were driving down to Sussex, it's what, over 200 miles from? Yeah, about
0: 230, something like that.
1: And we had another hour and three quarters to go, and he said to me, he said, I'm struggling to stay awake, just talk to me about anything. (laughs) So I thought, I'll ask him a random question. So I'm going to ask you the same random question I asked him, which was, well, I was looking out the windows of the car, and there were lots of trees. I said if you're a tree what tree would you be and why so that's your random question
3: <laughs> um I'm going to say something like an oak tree um because they're so sort of slow and steady aren't they 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 last for hundreds of years um they get to see I'm imagine here that the tree can see, which is already, you know, started going off into the realm of impossibility, isn't it? Really, but the amount of things that they p- potentially could see changing around them, um and the amount of habitats that they they support, you know, all the all the birds, all the insects, um yeah, they they just seem like such a, a stable part of of, of our, our environment. Mm. Um, very
2: much the anchor them.
3: point,
0: aren't they? Um, so kind of as myths well.
3: Around it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I said
2: oak
1: as well. So after Adrian answered the question, my answer was oak for similar reasons. And
0: mine was uh, giant redwood. Um oh, good one. Because at my school we had we had a couple of those. So the the the, the school itself used to be the home of a, a, a sort of local merchant, and he collected trees, and so there were some fantastic trees, and this giant redwood was really quite mature the scale of it was just enormous yeah. um I suppose it's the red hair as well but it, <laughs> it, it, and uh and the girth but the, the, I just had this this we we had a passion for hanging out by this giant redwood when we were kids uh in the playground it was there was something about it it had a gravitational pull all of the same.
1: trees and um I, there's a book by uh what's his name it's called the Overstory, and it's basically about the, the sort of the lives of trees i mean it's a fictional story i'm gonna to look it up now <laughs> richard richard someone
2: okay i mean
1: Give it won, me some... won a major prize it's called the Overstory, uh-huh. and it took me quite a long time to read it because it's quite a long book but it it was has such a profound effect on me that i started looking at trees in a new light
0: by richard powers
1: that's it richard powers
0: came out five years ago
1: mm.
3: Oh, i'm making
1: a note of it now I'm <laughs> I, I really i do recommend and, and
0: it. may i point out that the tree on the front cover
1: Yeah,
0: there is a giant redwood <laughs> that's
1: not the version i've got mine hasn't got that on it yeah
2: <laughs>
0: that's just something of again you know redwoods last a long long time um so that's that element but i think in terms of just yeah it's got a gothic grandeur to it mm-hmm. that's what i think about uh, the redwoods you probably could look up for twenty feet before the first branches arrive on a really mature one, so uh, yeah, it's something else. Uh, but the bark is amazing to touch. it really is it's just the most amazing, sort of slightly flaky feel to it, but yeah. Anyway, I get very passionate about the redwood. Well,
3: that's telling us something about ourselves, though, isn't it? We're, we're all choosing big, grand trees that live forever. None of us want to be like little stumpy birch or something that died after twenty years.
0: No, <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, but there you go. I think that's it. But that's part of the creative thing, it isn't, isn't it? it? That we're, oh gosh, I dropped my phone again. Um, this feeling of leaving something behind of, mm. of value and permanence. And yeah. one of the frustrations I had in my old job as a journalist was that in broadcasting. You don't even have the substance of ending up on paper as you would a newspaper or indeed a fanzine or anything like that. You know, there's no tangible thing. It goes out on air. It's stored in an archive and that's really, it's only legacy Mm
3: -hmm. unless
0: it's a piece of description. And we're recording this on the day that John Motson passes away, age 77, the great commentator, um, who I knew. And, you know, he's got, when when I sort of think of him, it's not just the sheepskin coat that everyone talks about. And, uh, oh,
1: you knew him? Yeah. I can picture him. Now
0: you can picture him, right. <laughs> I didn't
2: know who he was. But it's the him.
0: moments of magic that, he, you know, he was lucky enough to witness and give words to
2: mm-hmm. in the
0: way that Kenneth Home did or uh, Richard Dimbleby would do for a state occasion or anything like that. When you, get, when you capture the moment and it gets repeated, then it ha- takes on a certain permanence in people's minds. But in general speaking broadcasting doesn't do that it's in mm-hmm. and out it's gone it, it doesn't add up to anything and so I think that what's drawn me to writing is that feeling that it'll be there at least in the copyright libraries if I publish it I
1: was just about to say to if, <laughs> fulfill if, your dream you actually have to write it
0: that's true <laughs> I, I'm, I digress anyway <laughs> um, but you know, you can see where I'm going with this. There, there is that feeling. I, I don't know if that's one of your motivations when you're when you're writing.
3: Um, again, I, I don't know. I think you know, I've, I've got that just that drive to write, which I think would would be there regardless. Mm. Um, but yeah, I suppose when you think about who's going to remember me, what am I going to be remembered for? Not that in the grand scheme of things it matters. I mean, why should I be remembered? What makes me so so important? And, um, but yeah, I think we we do. We want to feel like we've left something behind, don't we? There's some, we've had some mark, and uh, you know, I don't I don't have children, so it feels like maybe this is yeah this this is the only way that I'm going to be carried through in some ways.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a lovely way to finish, <laughs> <laughs> is it not? But I, I
2: agree. You know, I like
1: the idea of been remembered for words or art or... Yeah, I think
2: so.
0: I think that that's a good thing to aspire to. Anyway, um, where can people find you online uh, and, and and find out more about your work?
3: Uh, I'm only on Twitter. I don't, I don't have a, a website, I'm afraid. So on Twitter, I'm at S underscore San uh, Darlington.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And, and it's, you know, we should do... We should touch poetry a lot more often on the show
1: It inspires me to write a bit more as well because every now and then I get poetic and um... I keep
0: forgetting you're a published poet (laughs) (laughs) Susan thanks so much for joining us. No
3: thank you very much it's been a pleasure
0: So listeners what tree would you be? We'd like to know that too. We would I went for (coughs) giant redwood. Giant redwood which
1: I I had to google (laughs) because I didn't know what a giant redwood looked like but I now know, and I'm going to look out for them on the way home.
0: Uh, they're not that common in this country.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it'll keep me quiet for three hours, won't it?
0: Uh, it will do. <laughs> and that's a, that's a blessing. I'm sure the audience would agree.
1: You say that, but on the way down... you. D- you insisted i talk to you to keep you awake yeah i was
0: really <laughs> struggling it I was just at the start of this cold sort of settling on me and, and my energy levels just dropped through the floor
1: that's how the tree conversation and came we, up in the first we, place that's
0: right we reached we reached the m25 and i said please talk to me i'm just going you know i'm glazing over as i as i drove."
1: <coughs> so we talked about trees
0: we did uh, and i guess we were going past the um Royal Horticultural Society at Wisby.
1: We were? Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Well,
0: it's at Junction 10, uh, where the A3 meets the Oh, M25. you would know
1: things like that.
0: Well, I used to work there. Not In, in the-, the water? To- no, 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 just down the road <laughs> from there, in Guildford. I- so, you know, I was a reporter, so of course I know this stuff.
1: OK, fair Why
0: While we've been in Rye, we've been visiting some of the... Unique landscapes around here. We went to Dunge-Ness.
1: We should also mention the famous person who lives in Rye. I was who getting we around to that. Okay. I was getting okay. around to that.
0: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for, for spoiler alert. Anyway, saw
1: a spoiler. I didn't know you were going to... No,
0: gonna... we, went, we went to dunge Now, we've mentioned it on the podcast before because we've had um, Zoe Lee Farrell and um, James Simpson. Joe Simpson have been on the show and they live quite relatively near here yeah. uh, and go to Dunge-Ness. And it is the most extraordinary Uh, Landscape because it is just this gigantic pebble beach with these quite strange shack-like cabins
1: and the pylons
0: and the pylons and the nuclear power station. It's very bleak, Uh, but it was the home of Derek Jarman, the uh, the director. Yes, Um, but that was quite uh, made quite an impression on us. But the famous person that we've been looking, keeping our eyes peeled out for, is my great hero.
1: And I'm looking now because wouldn't it be great if he just walked around the corner? Right now and could come on the podcast
0: uh, yeah uh, Tom Baker <laughs> I, I, I get a feeling that Tom Baker fourth doctor, would love it in here
1: I, th- I could see having him said, in here having said that,
0: he now has to get around with a stick and then it might just be his little, oh
1: he could still little, cope with a stick in yes, here well I don't know
0: anyway <laughs> would love to, he lives he lives in it very close to right, and uh, apparently
1: I think, he's been seen pottering
0: and he, we have been this week. Um, Before we go, we're going to have a a special guest in a moment, but um, we wanted to express our uh, condolences and deep concern for... uh, Well, actually, two friends, really. Uh, First of all, uh, not so much deep concern, but anyway, wish you a return to health, Adam Croft.
1: Oh, yes, Adam.
0: um, Who's been in hospital this week and uh, is awaiting further treatment. He's had an issue with his heart. So uh, bless you, Adam. Uh, Good luck. And the other person, and really, we feel oh, very... Oh, this very, is...
1: This, I don't know if I can compose myself long enough.
0: No, and this is for J.D. Kirk, or Barry Hutchison, as he is yeah. in real life, writing as J.D. Kirk, who we met at London Book Fair uh, last year. Um, he tweeted last night, and I must admit, it rocked my world.
1: Yeah, me too. I didn't sleep very well.
0: Uh, he forgot <laughs> to put the bins out, and... It's It's not just his bins that he does. He does his father and mother's, his mother-in-law's, and a neighbour's, elderly neighbour's bins every week. And he's let them all down.
1: He's let them all down. And although we're not responsible for quite so many bins, I have been there, so I feel the pain. I have forgotten to take the bins out.
0: So, uh, Barry, JD, whichever you prefer, we're with you. And uh, may people forgive you in time. For that, uh,
1: and it's only six uh, days till you can put the bins out again.
0: Absolutely. So we return to Hobeck Towers this week. Uh, I'm back in the studio recording more Roman epics. Uh, got tons. Of t- I've got three more to do. Um, so um, I've got to get my voice back for that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so we'll look for it on the way home.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you have tons, oh, and, tons and tons of stuff. Usual
1: stuff. Yeah.
0: Usual stuff gloss over anyway thank you for joining us on the show and uh, if you wish to find out more about Hobet books then go to our website www.hobecknet and uh, all the details of our authors our audio books our books it's all there and uh, also www.archpub.net is our new publishing services arm if you need advice support technical help with writing a book or getting it produced then come to that website and we'll, we'll, we'll lay it all out there for you, what we can offer you. <laughs> but it is time now to introduce our very special guest.
1: Yes, we do have a special guest. One of He's my been... oldest
0: friends and uh, one of my dearest friends, too. And I've often described her as my muse. Um, delighted to to have Vicky Nangle with us, who has popped over for the weekend from Brighton, so not far. But it feels like a million miles away in many respects, being in Rye. <laughs> And uh, Vicky is a fabulously talented writer But also well known in the British comedy circles As one of the great reviewers for the Brighton comedy scene Which is the epicentre of all things comic in this country It feels like So many great comics come from there Uh, And so it is a great honour As we're doing poetry For Vicky, if you wouldn't mind passing the microphone over To recite one of her poems What is it?
4: Uh, It's a poem that's It was for my, my younger self about how you feel when you grow up and you look back, I wish I knew that. And and so I wrote it, just in case any younger selves of me were were reading what I was writing.
0: That's very appropriate for the conversation we've just been having, really. (laughs) Take it away.
4: Dear younger me, I want you to know that that body is yours. You're not a tenant who pays rent and must keep it clean and magnolia, ready for inspection at any time. You don't need to worry that it's not acceptable as it is. You're no caretaker for another's property or future gaze. You own this home that you yourself have grown. Please, sit in that wriggly, jiggly, fun-filled meat sack. Paint it different colours, take it flying, let its hair grow and flow in the breeze. Start living life from the inside, growing grins and howls from the core. Running wild and climbing high, with dyspraxic limbs akimbo. It doesn't matter how it looks, just enjoy its strengths, its cooks. This holy home of your psyche is your own for all of your time. It's beautiful, flawed, carefree and a warrior fierce. So don't mourn the never there but somehow failed Barbie, disparity, without a thing but air behind those painted eyes of blue. It's not you, your miracle is true.
0: Beautiful, thank you. Thanks. And uh, here's an exclusive spoiler: we've invited Vicky to. Uh, we're having a. Uh, we're getting married in the end of the year, and Vicky's going to recite one of her fabulous poems at that. We well, can't say any more than that, really, because it's all a bit tush hush. But there we go. We're looking forward to that too. So, thank you for joining us. Thank You're you for welcome. your company over the weekend. It's been brilliant, and it's been really nice for me, being a poorly person, being looked after by two wonderful people. So, two
1: wonderful beautiful yes intelligent witty
0: yeah all of that all of that yeah 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 of course Goes without saying.
2: <laughs> so i
0: so i haven't said it um anyway thank you so much for joining us here on the Hofcast book show let's of course not forget to mention who we're speaking to next week nicole johnson
1: johnson yes nicole johnson who is a book coach
0: which is brilliant. I, this is something that I'm fascinated by. But, uh, you know, it's not dissimilar to Archpub in a way, some of that work, I'm No, sure.
1: so we're going to pick her brains a little bit and uh, find out what exactly what she does.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Quite a few people are using the services of book coaches now to, to help. You know, it's not that easy to approach it. You've got a book in you, but how do you get it there? Yeah. That's, uh, that's the question. So thank you for joining us. My name's been Adrian Hobart.
1: It has, and my name's been Rebecca Collins, it still is. <laughs>
0: And well, it won't be forever.
1: Oh, yeah, I'll be a Hobart.
0: <coughs> you will. You will. If things go, you know, as long as we cock it up between now and December, you'll be a Hobart. Thanks for joining us. And of course, don't forget to have a wonderful and
1: creative
0: week. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobec Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto Trad Values, Indie Spirit.